0: Uh, well, you'll notice in the, in the bulletin, we're starting a new sermon series uh, today called Claiming Faith, Learning How to Trust God. And as, as a part of our time together, uh, occasionally during the series, uh, what I thought it would be great for us to do would be to hear from someone in our church community about how God has been developing trust in them and teaching them about faith. So I've asked Kate Pig uh, to come forward and, uh, and share with us a little bit about what God has been, has been teaching her about faith and about trust. Uh, Kate and Don uh, have been married for 50 years, celebrated that on, in June. Come on up here. And we're so thankful to have you as part of our community and just invite you to share with us how God's teaching you. Mm-hmm.
1: The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, Psalm 18, 2. Good morning. I have been a teacher for 39 years, and I have taught second grade here at Woodland for eight, and I'm in my 20th year as a junior kindergarten assistant now. Teachers, moms, dads, and caretakers aren't supposed to ever get sick. We are called by God to be nurturers, Loving disciplinarians and educators. But guess what? Some do get sick. Nineteen years ago, I developed a terrible chemical imbalance that caused an almost disabling condition. A guardian angel from church literally came and dressed me and took me to her psychiatrist for a consultation. After nine weeks in the summer months, I finally began to recover with many appointments and trial and error medications. God was with me. Then 10 years ago, I had a mini bout of depression. My meds were increased, and that was that. God was with me. Then the end of last November, I suddenly felt that my meds were not working. I prolonged going to my doctor. Christmas was coming. And I was taking care of my mom part-time at Kirby Pines. I put my health on the back burner, which was a huge mistake. I kept saying to myself that this evil devastation wasn't happening again. The holidays came and went with no excitement. I just went through the motions during Christmas. Then on December the 29th, my precious mom died of an instant cardiac arrest. God was still with me through this loss and sadness. As many of you know, I had a severely sick bout for five and a half months. I had to take a medical leave from school for a whole semester, and I only came to church about three times. John went with every doctor's appointment with me every few weeks while I tried different meds with increases. I remained in a fetal position, covered with a blanket most of the long days of suffering and frustration. I was in the dark. But a miracle finally happened. I woke up on May the 23rd after beginning a new drug for only two days, and I shouted with joy to Don that I felt like I could go back to school. He, of course, was very reluctant that I was rushing things, but I went the last two days, and I was very, very tired but God was with me. I felt his presence. We prayed each day for healing, comfort, and smiles. Woodland Church, school, and our family never forgot us. We had food, calls, cards, and above all, prayers. God is good and is with us with our faith that continued to grow. Matthew 28:20 20 says, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. But we must trust God and believe in the divine healer of all times. In one of Matt's notes to me he wrote, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. Psalm 7:13 through 15 Jesus assures us of his never-failing love. He is near to us and is real through our faith. Our lives sometimes lead us through valleys and rough places. I experienced three personal dark valleys, but I knew God walked beside me no matter how I felt. God says to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Romans 12:12. 12, 12. God is our fortress, our deliverer, our shield. And he is a continued stronghold that will never fail. We want to believe that life is fair, but we wrestle sometimes with why things are not fair. We don't always have the answers, but we do have each other, and we have our faith. The most beautiful stones that have been tossed by the wind and washed by the water, they have been polished to brilliance by life's strongest storms, we all Are in God's hands What better place can we be With renewed vibrance Great health And the love of God I do know I have always been in His hands God is mighty And nothing is too difficult For Him to take care of Through faith and trust in Him We can make it Even though it sometimes feels like God Is unconcerned But He really does care He cared about Don and me, and he cares about each one of you. Oh, my Lord, you alone are my hope. I've trusted you since childhood. We need to not give up or be afraid through adversities. Allow God to fight for you and watch him at work. I did, and I trusted him. Will you please pray with me? Thank you for the world so sweet. Thank you for the food we eat. Thank you for the birds that sing. Thank you, God, for everything. And thank you for making me well again. Amen.
0: Indeed, God is faithful. Will you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11? Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. Teach us now in your holy and precious name. Amen. You may be seated. In the late 1600s in uh, London, England, uh, crime, especially the crime of theft of property, was rampant there in the city. There wasn't a police force, so people would hire thief takers what they called them, thief-takers. They're private individuals who would serve as as bounty hunters uh, to get their property back for a fee. And there was one man named Jonathan Wild who was one of the most effective at this task and he became quite well-known among the people in the city of London. He had an amazing network of associates who were always able to get the stolen property back. Of course, for a fee. And for years, his fame and adulation grew as, as he returned much stolen property. But as it turns out, he was actually a thief. His associates would steal the items and they would wait for the victims to approach Jonathan Wilde to find the stuff. And then eventually they would sell the stuff back to the owner, who was, of course, rejoicing that they merely had to pay a small fee to get their items returned to them. Jonathan Wilde had been betraying the city of London for years before he ever got caught. And some of us know what it's like to be betrayed, to have our confidence dashed and our trust broken. Even if you've never been betrayed, you've certainly dis- dis- experienced disappointment, if not disloyalty. When someone we love or respect lets us down in this way, our tendency is to pull back from that relationship because, you know, we don't want to get hurt again. The thought is if I entrust myself to that person or I make myself vulnerable, I run the risk of being being hurt over and over again. And so we close ourselves off. But this also affects the relationships that we have with other people. If we open ourselves up to others or even if we rely on others, can we trust that they are going to respond in love or will will they be people that we can really count on? And if the wounds that we've experienced are deep, deep, Or if they're fresh, we won't allow ourselves to trust anyone at all. I think sometimes when we're uh, really, really honest with ourselves, sometimes we see our relationship with God in the same way. We find it hard to trust God. It it could be that maybe we asked God to do something one time and He didn't do it. It could be that we see so much hurt in the world and we wonder how a, a God who is supposed to be good would allow such misery and such pain. Or we're afraid if we really walk in obedience to the Lord, that we will be seen by others as a fool. But what we really need to learn is that God indeed is faithful, that He is trustworthy, that He is true. What does it really mean to have faith that God will be there and that I can trust Him? How do we overcome that fear or the hurt or the insecurity that we have? Well, that's what this series is about: claiming faith. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me to, to claim, uh, to assert, to declare, to affirm that we have faith? Well we have to ask and answer the question: What is faith? And so to understand what faith really is, we turn to the book of Hebrews which was written by an unknown church leader. It's a word of exhortation. It might even have been a sermon. And so the people who were reading or hearing this sermon, this message, they were struggling. It says in chapter 10 that they were struggling with persecution, with suffering, with affliction. And so they were in danger of falling away from their faith, just like you and I. You know, In the midst of difficulty, it might seem that God is not working in our lives. That He doesn't care, or maybe even worse, that He's powerless to do anything about the real struggles that you and I are dealing with. And so, near the end of this sermon that the writer of Hebrews gives, he lifts up for them these ancient characters from the Old Testament who by faith were walking in obedience to God. Now, my goal in sharing about these uh, persons of faith in the Great Faith Hall of Fame in chapter 11 is not to set up some super faith ideal that we need to try to attain. While these characters were people of great faith, they were also fallen and broken people. On this list we find liars, murderers, adulterers, prostitutes, and cowards. Our purpose in examining them is to see that even in difficulty, or rather, especially in difficulty, God cares for His people, even if He doesn't fix everything. But instead, what God does is gives us opportunities to trust in Him and to be shaped and transformed into our character, into His character. You see, faith is learning to trust God in the good times and in the bad times. And these stories help us to see how other broken people were willing to trust God when times got tough. All these stories in their rich diversity point us to the same God, the only true and loving God, Jesus Christ. They help us to see the only one who was truly faithful. And that Jesus, that by trusting in Him, not only we are claiming faith, we're experiencing a faith that is claiming us. The writer of Hebrews expresses his thought in a powerful way in the previous chapter. In chapter 10, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. In reality, it's less about our faith and more about Jesus' faithfulness. It's the difference between great faith in God and faith in a great God. So here is how Hebrews defines faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I like how the paraphrase of the message puts it. The fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith, is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. It's our handle on what we can't see. So the writer of Hebrews says, the assurance of things hoped for. Faith deals with the future, but is rooted in the past. The reason that we have faith that we can walk upstairs uh, onto a second floor of a building that we've never entered is that throughout our past, historically, when we walk upstairs and go to a second story, Stairs have proven to be a reliable way for us to get higher. And floors of second stories have been a reliable way for us to stand at a higher level. Historically, we can trust that stairs and second floors actually work. We trust architects and construction workers to create places and spaces that support us. Right now, you're on the second floor. Did you know that? You run the risk of falling down into the middle school classrooms at any moment. But you don't even think about it, do you? Because you've come into this room so many times and you've trusted that the floor will hold. We can count on stairs and floors to hold us. So we all have faith, right? You know, even the atheist has faith. The person who doesn't believe in God is acting in faith. Just as the Christian cannot prove with empirical evidence that God exists, so too the atheist cannot prove with empirical evidence that God does not exist, and so they are believing by faith that God doesn't exist. They're taking it on faith. And yet what's so second nature to us as we walk up steps into another room or onto a second floor, into a building or into a home that we've never been in, we still struggle with trusting God. To work in our lives. To care for us. To be there when we need Him the most. We, we struggle in walking in obedience to His Word. And so what is faith? Hebrew says that it's an assurance, a, a confidence, a trust. The word literally means standing under. Faith provides a sure standing ground while we await the fulfillment of God's promises. Faith furnishes our heart with a sure support during the time between now and when God fulfills those promises. Regardless of the storm or the long, long waiting, faith gives what we hope for a present reality in our lives. Faith gives the soul possession of something that is not our current reality. Faith is believing that God will do what He says, and that belief then changes what we do. And so we love. We give. We serve. We sing. We obey. We, we dance. We rejoice in His love and in the promise of His love. First, faith is assurance of things hoped for. Second, Hebrew says, faith is a conviction of what we cannot see. In a court case, a person who only hears about an, um, an event secondhand is not permitted to give testimony except in very rare circumstances because what they have is hearsay. And eyewitness testimony is permitted because they can share what they saw firsthand. And so when you see something happen, your testimony... Is permitted. Hebrews tells us that faith is a conviction of something that we cannot see. It is the proof or the persuasion. The word is derived from a verb which means to convince through demonstration. The Presbyterian minister from the 17th century, Matthew Henry, explained faith in this way. He said, imagine two people are standing on the deck of a ship staring at a far horizon. The one sees nothing. The other describes the details of a distant steamer. The former has only his unaided eyesight. The latter is using a telescope. Now, just as a powerful glass brings home to the eye an object beyond the range of our normal vision, so faith gives reality to the heart things outside the range of our physical senses faith sets divine things before the soul in all light and power of demonstration and provides an inward conviction of their existence. He says, faith demonstrates to the eye of the mind the reality of those things which cannot be discerned by the eye of the body. And so Hebrews then shares with us a number of people who have expressed or experienced or demonstrated faith in their lives. And the first one that is given to us is Abel. He says, By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith he was commended to be a righteous man. And by faith he still speaks, even though he is dead. In order to understand more about Abel, it would be helpful for us to go back to the Old Testament where Abel appears with his brother Cain in the fourth chapter of Genesis. There, uh, Genesis, we read, Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten the man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Well, later in the story, Cain then murders his brother Abel. Probably one of the main reasons why Cain is not in the great faith hall of fame. But here we see that the Lord had regard for Abel's offering. Why? Well, Cain brought an offering. But Abel brought the firstborn of his flock, the fat portions, it says. It seems as if Cain's offering was just some of what he had, but, but Abel was offering the best of what he had. The best of what he had cost him something. Not only was it a sacrifice for him to give what he offered, but he literally sacrificed the offering. The shed blood of the Lamb was an acknowledgment that his reconciliation with God required the shedding of innocent blood. You know, one commentator suggests that Cain was the first hypocrite. The one who comes under the guise of worship, but whose sacrifice really means nothing. He represents all those who come before the Lord, honoring Him with their lips, but whose hearts are far from Him. Who think to pay God a compliment but who refuse to meet his requirements. Those who pose as pure worshipers but live ultimately to please themselves. And this is what made Cain so angry that he was kill his own brother. His false worship was exposed by the sacrificial gift that Abel made by faith. I remember when I was a senior in high school, my science class, I was, had the opportunity to go to the science fair, not because my science fair project was really very good, but because I got extra credit to go, and the teacher needed some people to go to the science fair. And so me, wanting to get some extra credit, decided I would go to the science fair. And of course, it was the same project that I had done uh, two years before, with really no modifications in any way. And this was back in the days when you didn't have cardboard. You know these, when when you go into the the fellowship hall, you're going to see these awesome, uh, these little boards, and they're made of cardboard, and they're very light. Mine was literally made from plywood, and it must have weighed a hundred pounds. My dad and I made it, and I lugged it in. It was too long to fit on my arm, so it was very awkward. Did not like going to the science fair. But anyway, I was there with my board up, and it was this thing about, does bleach kill bacteria? Great. Well, I went with the desire to get some extra credit. And there, in the science fair, was my 10th grade biology teacher, who came by and looked at my projects, and she said, isn't that the exact same thing you did in my class? And I said, yes, it is. And I really, at the time, I didn't feel that bad about it, but I realized (laughs) I was doing it for me. I had no real desire to learn something about science. I had no desire to elevate the scientific community at my high school. I was doing it totally for me. And when she pointed out that I had just come, essentially, just doing something for myself, it made me realize it was just all about me. And I was confronted with that reality. When you think about... When Cain came to worship that day, and I don't know how the worship service went, if it was a service at all, but when he showed up with some grain from his pocket, or just a little bit of something for the Lord, and here comes Abel with the fat portion, with the, the something that cost him something, what did Cain feel like? Well, we know that he was angry. We know that he was angry, so angry that he would kill his own brother. We see that in Abel, he came not for himself, not because of what he would get out of it, but because he came to the Lord with a spirit of worship by faith. He said, Lord, this is for you. And brothers and sisters, I think the reason why Abel is in the great faith hall of fame is because he came to the Lord by faith and said, Lord, this is for you. This sacrifice of my life, of my worship, is for you. It's not about what I can get. And I love the fact that Abel is the first person in the Great Faith Hall of Fame. And maybe it's chronological, but what it does is it puts our focus squarely on the the beautiful promise of worship and what worship does as it increases our faith and our trust in God. For you see, when we focus our minds and our hearts and our lives squarely on the goodness and on the glory of God, that increases our faith. Worship is about God and who He is and what He has done. And when we worship, we can believe that God is more powerful than our adversaries. He is bigger than our circumstances. As we see Him more clearly, we're led to praise and to walk into obedience and to, and to trust Him. And so the value of being here today as the body of Christ is that you get a chance to be reminded of how awesome, how wonderful, how glorious the God of the universe really is. And He is the one who is with you in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of the trying experience that you're facing right now. The greatest pain, the greatest agony, the confusion, the wondering. God is with you now. And so if you come in like Cain, merely showing up because it's what you're supposed to do or you want to get something out of it, you're going to miss the true worship that God has called us to experience and to offer. But you see, most of us really are a mix of both Cain and Abel, aren't we? And we know in our heart that we should come as a response to who God is and what He is doing. But we do come because we want to get something out of it. But we come like Abel with a desire to, by faith, express our acknowledgement of God and His glory. Then we get something out of it because we get a bigger picture of who God is. And what we want when we came in is different. Because what we want is more of God, more of His glory and His power. So we must become like Abel, coming to the Lord with our best offering, willing to bow down even when there are canes around who are simply going through the motions. And the beauty of Abel's sacrifice is that it points to the sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God who would be slain. So when we lack trust or we struggle with faith, we remember what Jesus was willing to do to be faithful on our behalf. As we meditate on His sacrifice, on His life, then we're moved to faith in our own lives because ultimately it's all about Him and what He's doing. On June 25, 1865, James Hudson Taylor, at 33 years old, came to the great crisis of his life. The locale was Brighton Beach on the south coast of England and there on a quiet Sunday morning, he took a step of faith in response to a simple spiritual principle that he had just discovered. He was surprised that this truth had so long eluded him. He says, If we are obeying the Lord, the responsibility rests with Him and not with us. Months of struggle were over. The way ahead was clear. To obey the Scriptures and to trust God to be faithful to His pledged Word was not rash. And so then, throwing caution to the winds, he formed the China Inland Mission which was a revolutionary approach to mission. No longer would they just stay on the coastlines, but they would then look and dress and take on the culture of the Chinese so they might reach them for the sake of the gospel. And Ralph Winter, one of the most significant uh, missiologists ever, said, more than any other human being, James Hudson Taylor made the greatest contribution to the cause of mission in the 19th century. You see, Taylor knew that he could trust God to be faithful so then he walked in obedience
1: the question is will you let us pray